Meets Outdoor Explorer. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My guest today is Millet Keller, my dad. My mom and dad arrived in Anchorage in 1963 from Palo Alto, California. They stayed for 30 years and in the process, instilled a great love of Alaska and the outdoors to my brother and myself. Along the way, they both were parts of key moments in Alaska history. In the second episode of this two-part series, you'll hear about Millet's role in recruiting Don Young to make his first run for the House of Representatives against Nick Baggage, how he advocated for and supported girls' sports and community recreation in Anchorage, and his outdoor adventures that included heli skiing in the Caribou Mountains and competing in Mount Marathon. Keep listening for more on Outdoor Explorer. Thanks for coming back and chatting with me again, Dad. It's nice to be with you again. So last week we got through how you grew up in Montana and what that was like back in the 40s and 50s and then coming to Alaska and the 1964 earthquake and working with John Brown on an oil field reservoir model. So I think we're kind of at the point in history where we want to talk about Don Young. But first, I think you should kind of set the stage of what Alaska looked like politically when you first arrived in 1963. Well, in 1963, uh... Democrats had all of the statewide offices, governor, both senators, congressmen. And um, so, so there, those are the, the uh, people that were uh, instrumental in, in the very beginning of being the first persons to serve in the, in the new state after statehood in, in 1959. So you came into Alaska as a Republican maybe like an old school Republican, not like a Republican necessarily well, how we the, think of those, today. In those days, it was the Republicans had just turned this conservative corner with Barry Goldwater. And um, the Democrats were had started into kind of a failure mode because the Republicans, and in, in this case, it was William F. Buckley uh, and Reagan were some of the leaders of that. And, um, they were the, the inspiration and National Review became kind of a philosophical uh, newsletter. It wasn't until 1966 that the big change occurred. Um, Bill Egan had been governor, even before statehood he had been governor. And um, he, uh, he filed for renomination uh, to, uh, or, to uh, renomination because the, uh, the original statehood bill had a provision as to how we set up the thing so that what cycle does the governor, is the governor gonna be in? What cycle is, is each senator gonna be in? And um, in, the, in the Congress, it doesn't make a difference because we only had one congressman and they have to run every two years. So in the mid sixties, you started to see the beginning of the shift towards Alaska uh, being more of a Republican state. Um, yeah, more more Republican. It was the first time statewide that we'd had a state elect all Democrats in holding statewide offices up through '96 or '66, uh, and then that changed because Hickel got elected. Um, uh, Egan, uh, he beat uh, Bill Egan, who was who was the existing governor, and and. He had, they had set his position up that there's a term limit on the governor. They imposed this term limit. 
And the very first person that gets elected is going to, if he runs, is going to be a third term uh, if, if he runs. And as it turned out, uh, he got beat by Hickel. So 1968, Howard Pollock runs again for the statewide, for the House and wins. Uh, and Hickel is in the cycle that would come up in 1970. So in 1968, you got Pollock who gets elected as Republican. Um, Hickel is already a Republican. And we have two senators. So uh, the state's turning. You can kind of see this. Wally's he's getting, he's not going to have to run until 1970. But in 1968, uh, a guy named Richard M. Nixon <laughs> was elected president. And uh, he is appointing a cabinet and he tips, tips Wally to be Secretary of Interior. So Wally accepts and, um, the, and, and uh, about a month or two into his term, they had the oil spill in Santa Barbara. Mm. Wally's Secretary of Interior, and so he's got this huge problem. And it, and it was a real serious problem because Santa Barbara is this kind of pristine, this reputation is kind of a pristine beach-oriented place. And, and so and Pollock gets reelected for one for his second term. And uh, so we now have still have a Republican governor. And we have a Republican House Representatives rep, and uh, and everything moves along for one month after the election, and Bob Bartlett dies. Mm -hmm. So we've got uh, a lot of uh, turnover coming up, and the governor is the one who uh, appoints uh, replacement senator. Wally is not left yet, but he's he's going to leave, and he's got this vacancy that he can fill before he goes to Washington to be Secretary of Interior. And uh, he uh, appoints or nominates or submits Ted Stevens' name to be the replacement senator for Bob Bartlett. I don't know if you were looking for, for an opportunity, like saw maybe just to get somebody's name out there, or if it was a serious challenge to baggage, but how did the whole Don Young, uh, let's get Don Young to run for uh, this seat come up? Well, he went, it's an open seat uh, when, because Pollock didn't run again, or Begich ran against him. I'm not sure which. Anyway, Begich is elected in 19, 1970. And he became very popular. He's a fast talker. He was a very charismatic guy. He was really young too, wasn't he? He was like young. in his thirties, or yeah, he had big, he had big family, and mm -hmm. uh, and so anyway, he gets elected, and he takes office in in 1971, and serve. He just makes lots of star points. He's looks like he's kind of almost bulletproof. And he starts in the in the running for for the uh, reelection in the, in the nineteen seventy two election cycle. Begich is campaigning uh, for uh, for a renewal seat. I don't think he had he was going to have a challenge in the primary, 
Um, and the Republicans didn't have anybody that was interested in running against him because they it was kind of a done deal. And so he's um, campaigning uh, for uh, right, uh, to renew his seat, a reelection, and he does, doesn't look like he's going to have any problems. Mm -hmm. So Hale Boggs, who's a majority leader in the House, in the U.S. House of Representatives, Hale Boggs. Um, comes up to go on a little barnstorming trip in Alaska. So he's got, it's a real prestigious thing to have him campaigning um, for you. So they're in the, in the, the uh, Republicans couldn't come up with a, a candidate or had been struggling to try to get somebody to volunteer and there was nobody volunteering to do this. And of course, the, one of the big topics is we're, we've got to come up with a candidate. We can't, the state convention is the last chance we'll have to have a candidate. So I was a delegate to the state convention and um, we talked a lot about who would we like to, to run. And Don Young's name came up quite a, quite a bit. And he was very, he was in the state legislature. He'd been there for a long time. He's in the state Senate. And uh, um, he had a certain amount of charisma. You know, he's kind of the, the aw shucks little uh, guy and so forth. So um, we decided this, the nominations committee at the state convention, uh, Don Young was the, was the one that looked like had even a glimmer of a chance at this, and and but was gonna we'd have to know upfront that you're you're gonna be kind of a sacrificial lamb in this thing because we don't see how uh, anybody they they uh, couldn't come up with a better candidate baggage the Democrats couldn't. So um, I was delegated to call him up and run this thing by him. So. Uh, called him up in, in just a regular old phone call, no, no heads up or set up in the beginning and just talk about what's going on and this problem we're having in the convention. You, you are the only candidate that, that or a person we could see that could, could represent the party in any. So he talked about it and he wanted to think about it. So we gave him a few minutes to think about it. <laughs> and there are some other people in, you know, in the phone conversation, but there's, I think there are probably two or three of us that were kind of just trying to. And um, he finally said, OK, and I know that what's going to happen is that I'm going to lose this one. I, I think his, his state Senate seat may have been safe. He wasn't mm -hmm. on the ballot that year, so he may have been in the in the off cycle. So but. Um, so he reluctantly agreed and uh, started putting a campaign together. And, and we thought at that point, we'd just forget about it because there's nothing else we can do. Except we can raise money, but we're not gonna raise very much money. So it's gonna be kind of a, a uh, travel around the state sort of thing. And Begich is uh, with Hale Boggs is flying down to Juneau, or gonna fly down to Juneau, they were in Anchorage. They were, uh, this is in October, right before the election, like a, like three weeks before the election. I, yeah, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I, know I looked it, it up. It was October sixteenth. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
so uh, things are pretty well greased. I mean, Begich is going to win, and and uh, Don Young will just go go back to being a state senator. If I I think if his, if he was in the cycle, and he disappears, he and Hale Boggs disappear. I didn't in, even realize how close the disappearance was to Anchorage. They were only like. I think their last communication was 10 minutes into the flight right before they entered Portage Valley. And they think they disappeared somewhere in Portage Valley. I never realized it was still that close to Anchorage. Yeah, I, it, anybody that's flown from, from Anchorage to Juneau or Juneau to Anchorage is in for one of the most beautiful airplane trips. Mm -hmm. and Rick, they asked Rick Steves one, one time, what's, the, what's your favorite flight? What's what you've been all around the world? He, he says Seattle to Anchorage. Wow, <laughs> it's the most beautiful, and it is. It is beautiful. But I thought that that's where they were going to eventually find him. This plane crashed into a glacier, went right. down a crevasse, and got covered, and is going to come out in about fifty or hundred years when the melting. Okay, so the so baggage bogs disappear October 16th. Um, and then there's a big, you know, uh, like trying to find him, you yeah. know, flying through Portage Pass. He was, they were in a small plane. Um, and then the election happens in three so, weeks. Yeah. So, and he's still obviously still on the ballot. He's not, he wasn't yeah, declared dead until December. So, and this has happened before, it hadn't happened here, but this is kind of this turmoil that's going on in Alaska, as I always saw it. But the idea was that if, if you're within, a, I think it was 120 days or 60 days of an election, in other words, the ballots are close enough that the ballots have already been printed, that ballot is what voters are going to see. They're going to go into the ballot box and they're going to see. Uh, for U.S. Congress, they're going to see Begich and, and Don Young. Yeah. So the the election day comes. They're both still on the ballot. Right. And what happens? Begich wins. By quite a bit, right? Yeah. yeah. So the ultimate humiliation, when you think about it, we got <laughs> Don Young to run and to campaign and then to get beat by somebody who's dead. Right. And then there's, so then there was a special election. So we had to, you know, it was close enough that had to have another, essentially a, a, another election, which I think was held in January or February. Um, in the meantime, it's an empty seat in the Congress. We, we don't have mm -hmm. a Congressman. So they have the special election and Don Young is on the ballot with no, I, I don't know, they couldn't add anything. So I think they just put Don Young and, and Begich back on the ballot. No, and I think it, it was, a, it, Begich was not on the ballot. Okay. It was just okay. a special election yeah. to elect yeah. someone to fill the yeah. seat. Yeah. yeah. But, but the parallels to right now are just so incredibly amazing because I don't know if you know that Nick Begich, the grandson of Nick Begich, is the Republican running against Don Young in this in this election, this upcoming election? Did you know that? Uh, when I was looking at these, I could see that there were baggages, uh, baggage three, I think one of them. Is that? Who? Yeah, I think it's the third. I think it's yeah. grandson. Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure so who's son. I didn't son. realize that, 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 that he was actually running. There were some of the news stories, but I, I didn't, I wasn't reading uh, 
And then just the fact that Don Young died on an airplane. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, how Nick Baggage died. Yeah. And yeah. It, it it is just, um, it, it is really weird looking at all, and there has to be another special election and all of these things. But at the bottom of it, dad, which you didn't tell us this until maybe the story like 15 years ago or something. At the bottom of it, you were the one who made the phone call that first got Don Young to run for the seat. So yeah. in a way you were responsible for yes. the last 50 years. <laughs> I had uh, a lot of help. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, let's, um, you know, the, the political stuff is like really fascinating. I kind of want to come back to it because um, you always told us these stories too about how the Republican Party in in Anchorage started to really change in the mid '70s, and you noticed it because um, the convention started being taken over by um, Jerry Prevost's people, right. and then you really noticed like a change in the direction um, that the party that you felt part of was becoming, you know, more socially conservative, which you necessarily weren't necessarily socially conservative. Right. Right. So, so that was a big change, but there was a lot of things happening during that time. So um, I really do want to get to some outdoor stuff too, but uh, also um, we kind of briefly talked about um, before we started Jay Hammond and the permanent fund dividend. Yeah, that was it. I went out. I kind of did the history uh, when I was looking looking up through uh, Don Young's election through through 1972. But anyway, so Jay Hammond is a Republican. Ted Stevens is a Republican. Um, Gravel. Uh, Mike Gravel is the other senator. He just recently died too. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, and then the, in the Congress, we've got uh, a Democrat. So, so it turns out at that point, Begich is the only, Begich and, and uh, Mike Gravel are the only statewide Democrats. So, but um, so anyway, that's the state was starting to, to uh, turn, turn red from blue. Mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. so anyway, Jay Hammond is elected and, and he, has grave concern, rightfully so, about what's going to happen to this permanent fund. Because the chances are, if we don't do anything else, it's going to get squandered on a whole bunch of projects that will be empty and unable, we won't be able to support um, for a long time. And they'll end up just being white elephants. So he and Elmer Rasmussen, who was a chairman, the CEO of National Bank of Alaska. Who also recently died. I mean, all of these people. And he he wasn't necessarily a politics, although he had been beaten by Stevens in the primary back in the 60s when, when Ted. Elmer Rasmussen. Elmer Rasmussen, yeah. Mm -hmm. But he was he's really apolitical. He, he didn't have anything mm -hmm. to do with the party. Um, and But he just, he was very passionate about this permanent fund that we needed to have it before the money started flowing. Cause once the money starts flowing, um, it's going to be too late. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the, the schedule was, it was going to take a year to build the road. 
And uh, then, the, meanwhile, a lot of this pro uh, production is all, it's all shut in, but there's still the stuff that we'd worked with on, on getting ready to start pushing it on, on the pipeline. So the idea was it would take, we'd take one year, 1974, to build the road. And uh, in 1975, they would start uh, the, the getting ready to start producing. And 1977 be, became the first day of production. And um, so in the meantime, Elmer Rasmussen had put together, uh, and Jay Hammond cobbled together a group in this springing this idea of a permanent fund, which would debt take 25% of the oil revenues, the oil revenues, not the investment income, uh, and put that into a fund, a permanent fund. And um, some people thought there might, it might end up being uh, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And it turns out it's 65 billion right now. And they forecasted that, that there's a point where the earnings, because the production is declining as you, as soon as mm -hmm. you open the, open up the, the uh, valve to start the oil flowing. The, the uh, pipeline got built on time. They got the road in and with the road, they could start building, building the pipeline, almost a miraculous project. When you think about how big it was and, it was a watershed uh, event for women as well, because this, the teams, normally these, all these union laborers, laborers uh, are in male dominated unions and the Teamsters, for all the, the uh, comments that get made about them, recruited women to, to work uh, on building the pipeline. And so they were out driving trucks and doing everything that they were expected to do, everything that the men would do. And it became a huge breakthrough for women in getting into these uh, unions and opening the door to women. And they had to agree to certain things. They had to, to uh, have a one bathroom. They're not gonna have a men's and women's. It's one bathroom and the showers are in the bathroom. Uh, and um, you have to have two bunk, two people per bedroom. There's no private bedrooms. And it's possible that you could have a man and a woman in a bedroom. I'm not sure how they handle all that, but they they thought that whole thing through. Maybe they're just like hot cots, you know, like people are, yeah. somebody be sleeping for 12 hours and somebody else would come right. in and sleep on the other one for 12 hours. Yeah. yeah. So, so that kind of brings me to recreation in Alaska during that time, because I feel really lucky, you know, Title IX was passed in 1972, but I felt like Anchorage was always this great welcoming and encouraging place for women and girls in sports. And you were definitely part of that for me, obviously. And you were always a big sports guy. You'd been skiing in Montana when you were growing up and you were, you skied in Tahoe. Um, and then you took this um, great heli, heli skiing trip to the Caribou Range in British Columbia, which heli, heli skiing was something new at that time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was still, still uh, new and, and uh, not too expensive, as it turns mm. out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was kind of a, a nice thing, too, because I, I, otherwise it would only be rich folks to do it. But 
and they did a great job and they promoted it and eventually it just grew over heads and tails and uh, they start, and it's in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Right. Alaska was a big deal. Mm-hmm. One other thing too that happened when the, this is all when the money started flowing, um, Anchorage had one private swimming pool. There was no this, public, public swimming pools. The spa. Yeah, the spa, right. And that's where oh. I learned to swim. All right, yeah. Just, it was almost like a backyard pool. It was kind of a small room and... and uh, it was like an atrium. It was like all foggy on the windows, huge win- atrium windows. On Chester Park or Chester. Yep, by Valley of the Moon Park, yeah. Valley of the Moon Park, yeah. And we ended up with these... 50 meter, uh, not all over 50. Meters. No, 20, 20, only one 50 meter pool and that's Bartlett. But yeah. um, uh, but you you had a hand in the YMCA and uh, I mean, the YMCA yeah, they and- They built a pool. Right, so, and at the APU Mosley Sports Center pool. Your name is up on the wall there, by the way. <laughs> so at least you donated money to that. Yeah. Uh, so, so how did the YMCA start? Start the, the the pool or the right the whole building because you were part of that. Oh, I was. Um, yeah, I I was on the board of directors. You know, mm-hmm. they try to roll over people that'll help with fundraising and and uh, got and guide the things that they do. And so, uh, uh, the other thing that that you did that I think was pretty significant was you had been a baseball player in high school and briefly in college. And when Jeff and I were pretty young, you were our little league baseball coach. I think the significance of this was that that team was girls and boys. Right. And would, do you remember what year that was? Uh, You guys would have been seven or eight years old, something like that. So, right. So like 1971, 1972, around the time Title IX passed. Yeah. Um, and was there ever any discussion back then of we're going to have a girls and boys playing on the same little league team? Because I mean, little league became throughout the 70s and 80s, uh, the effort to keep girls out in the lower 48 became quite a thing. Yeah. No, it was uh, the one thing that had happened is I realized what, because I was lucky enough to have a, a son and a daughter or a daughter and the son, depending on who I'm talking to. Yeah, <laughs> well, I was born first, so. <laughs> and um, it dawned on me all this, because I had done sports in high school and and, uh, and it was just assumed that, you know, there's. It's, it, girls don't play football, girls play softball. And, um, and I, I, I thought about all, all I had gotten out of sports when I was in school, you know, by the time you get to be a um, junior high is when you're, when it really kicks in, you decide whether you really want to play and get better at this or, or it bores you to death and you'd rather do something else. But anyway, the um, so anyway, we had boys and girls, and and the parents that were there always wanted to make sure that their child got to play, and so you have to kind of manage that a little bit. 
And, but um, at that age, at, at that age, girls are usually better than at boys. They always have been at, at those ages. We, mm -hmm. Even when I was in elementary school, I can remember we had races and the girls would win the race. Uh huh. Uh, and the boys catch up about 12 or 13 years old. Right. And they can hit the ball farther. They can throw the ball farther than the girls and so forth. So any, anyway, it, um, it became really meaningful to me that that, uh, and I, I'm not sure I would have, it would have meant if I had two sons and I didn't have a daughter. Mm -hmm. and then I thought, well, anybody who has a daughter knows what, to expect because you can see it from your own experience uh, having a mixed uh, mixed team down in the elementary range mm -hmm. works pretty well yeah so throughout um why i look at you as such a great promoter of girls and women in sports is that it it was always important to you to go to both mine and jeff's games if it was a game or um a track meet or cross-country meet and you were always there even when i was an adult playing women's league soccer in the 80s yeah. you were there um they didn't have enough coaches and i think i got roped into being a coach i know i was said because you were in a playing soccer in a league with women with women in their 20s that was in the 80s yeah when i was in my 20s yeah but anyway at some point in there i I just I liked soccer, but I never understood the rules and I never could use the flags right, you know, and I didn't I never did understand until recently until well, the last five or 10 years, what offside is. Uh huh. And actually it was just I think last year when I really <laughs> not it's, it's where the ball is kicked <laughs> and whether there's a defensive player behind you or not. So anyway. Took me a long time to to understand what offside is all about, but at any rate, I was—I mean—they were desperate for coaches, and it—you could see women change so much in, 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 on on aggression, because mm -hmm. um, boys are in their, uh, you know, put their head down, their shoulder down, and and uh, you know, try to avoid the ball because somebody pitches you one that's really hard. And um, so, I, but they were just, just so anxious. They covered it mud, you know, when if, mm -hmm. they, if it was rainy or what, whatever, they would just get, and they're all laughing and, and so, mm -hmm. and so you can see, now that's what sports meant to me. You know, you just love it and you don't care about whether you're grimy or not, so. Mm -hmm. And that team camaraderie. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big deal too. just being on a team and having uh, developing because it's all the same, you know, pretty soon they're in there with their, getting their head in at the ball instead of mm -hmm. trying to avoid contact with the ball. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see them t taking on this more aggressive posture. For mm -hmm. But that's what sports are all about. You are listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll hear more from Millet Keller and his role in Alaska history. You're listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. Find the show anytime as a free podcast in the iTunes Store 
or connect with us online at alaskapublic.org. listening to Outdoor Explorer on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Lisa Keller. My conversation with Millet Keller continues. So I was reminded of, um, well, I guess I, I wasn't really reminded of this story, but I was giving a um, conversation, a talk about Title IX and uh, just a couple weeks ago. And Heather Flynn was in on this talk. She was, it was a Zoom meeting and um, the Universalist Church puts, puts these Sunday talks on. They're really great. So they talk about all sorts of issues. And so at the end of my talk, Heather got on and Heather Flynn was on the school board with you in the late 70s and early 80s. And you guys, the two of you were diametrically opposed politically, but I think very respectful of each other's viewpoints and, and your passion for what you believed in. So Heather came on and told a story about the whirlpool baths that we're going to go in at East high school. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Do you want to tell that story? Because her point of it was, is that you looked at it because you had seen how much I had gotten out of sports. So your decision was backing up women in sports and girls in sports. This is some kind of budget issue for on the school board. I don't remember now what it was all about, but it was a, uh, actually, I think it was a soaking pool or a, a gym, gym pool, ice pool. I, I remember it. Yeah. I remember when we got it. Yeah. And um, this was on a, some kind of budget related meeting with the, with the school board and they were only going to get, they were only going to get one of these, whatever the school decided they wanted one of these. And um, it turned out they, by one, they meant boys. He was going to go in the boys' locker room. And so we had a little chat with them. And uh, at a school board meeting, you're, you're kind of looking for approval. You have to approve spending on capital items like that. I think it was considered a capital item. Anyway, they, uh, I think a lot of people realized, that's when I realized if you had a daughter, everybody should have at least one daughter. <laughs> because you'll, you'll see how much different it is in those days. The sports are different. You're not, you're not willing or not uh, prepared for what it means to have, provide equal access to various things. So anyway, we questioned them about the, why we're only getting one of them and where is it gonna be? Well, the women can't go in the boys' locker room to get into the, the whirlpool so you're going to have to get a second whirlpool and they went back and it, and it wasn't a huge expense i mean it was mm-hmm. tens of thousands of dollars uh, something like that I, so anyway that they ended up getting two two of these these uh, whirlpool baths but for con- for context this was like in 1979 or 1980 right i mean this was you know, just after the passage of Title IX, 
Um, there weren't re really that many challenges yet to Title IX. I mean, it would have been easy for the Anchorage School District or the school board just to go, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, just one for the boys. But you and Heather kind of led that charge. This is Heather's memory that she brought it up and that you were right there with her, you know, yeah. that what, what's going to happen with this. And um, I just think that's really forward thinking. And I think that's another reason why girls are lucky to grow up in Anchorage. <laughs> um, let's talk about Arctic Valley in the early years. Well, it was pretty primitive to uh, <laughs> have an outdoor John. Uh, and uh, when it's, five above zero. That was the big thing. I remember having to go to like just a pit toilet and it smelled even in the winter time. <laughs> no, but what it, was it like skiing at Arctic Valley back in, in those days? Well, the, the nice thing about it is it's, it's small. I mean, that isn't one of the nice things. It's really, it's a pretty small hill and not that much vertical in it. Um, but the lines are short. And, which was nice. And the elevation is about 3,000 feet. So you ski in Rocky Mountain type snow. Whereas mm -hmm. down to Alaska, you got West Coast storms and you ski most, mostly in heavy. Alaska yeah. is in the shade for about half of the school year or half of the skiing year. And Arctic Valley gets this full blast of because it's way above the timberline. So you're, you're, it gets this full blast of sunshine and you can tell starting in mid-February to late February where people are skiing mm -hmm. by the level of it, <laughs> By their goggle marks. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I remember back in the um, 60s and 70s, some pretty exciting drives up Arctic Valley Road. Like, yeah. are we going to make it up the road? I mean, yeah. because nobody had four-wheel drive back then. And people, I don't remember people putting chains on. Uh, no, we didn't. We, you, you just kind of, you know where the steep part comes. And you know you've got to be going at least 15 to 20 miles an hour when you hit that steep spot. Because you need momentum to get over it. <laughs> So you can drive the rest of the way to the top. And you don't worry about what it's going to be like coming down. Like, oh, this is going to be pretty scary coming down on this icy road. Yeah, that uh, coming down wasn't so bad. It, 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 there were points where if, if you got going too fast, then you're going to just cartwheel mm -hmm. over the edge. Yeah, <laughs> it's a scary road. It was, and the other, but the nice, actually, one of the nice things, too, is you get a family ticket for 20 bucks. Yeah. And um, that's important for your family if mm -hmm. you want to be ski, skiing because uh, you can't do it now. I was talking to my son, or Jeff, your son. <laughs> my brother. <laughs> um, and they said that for a three-day pass to ski in Bozeman, mm -hmm. it's $250 or $300, wow. something like that, for a three-day pass. For one person. For one person. Well, it's not a family sport in that town then. Or, or you, 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 uh, you go into the wilderness and just break yeah. the trail. And, right. And... Yeah, I don't think it's a family sport uh, in many places anymore. It's just, to, it's just priced so many people out of being able to do that. 
So in, in the seventies was kind of the beginning of the running boom. And, um, we were, well, Jeff and I started running first, I think, but then you and mom really, uh, picked it up and, um, you had, um, some, a string of Mount marathon entries during that time. And you and I have searched high and low for this, uh, picture that we can't find yet a great one of you coming off Mount marathon, but, uh, tell, tell what, what was Mount marathon like in the 1980s? Well, it, um, is similar to what it is now, except it's got a lot more people that want to do it. So they have used to be able to just send in a letter to the chamber of sewer chamber of commerce and get get a uh, a permit or whatever a ticket whatever they and an uh, entry <laughs> yeah they eventually had to limit it and uh uh they had to limit it to 500 or something like that and i think they had always separated the men and the women no Kids. they didn't so i ran the last race where the men and the women were together and i ran the first race where they oh. separated the men and the women i think that yep. happened in 1986 or 87. yeah so anyway the uh, the challenge is is the training and i had gotten kind of tired of running on hard surfaces you know like the 5k and 10k and so forth and i love the mountains that you get uh, mm -hmm. places. So yep, being up in the Chugach and yeah. yeah, we spent a lot of time in the Chugaches, kids. Yeah. yeah. And so, what was your training like? Well, the uh, I got tired of training on hard surfaces, and it, I love to hike. I've always liked hiking, and here's a, a sport that training is hiking. And the nice part of training there is that you start, I started in May and I would probably two or three times a week go up and, and climb one of the, the peaks in that ridge above Rabbit Lake. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so the training made a huge difference. The first time I went, I trained by just climbing the stairs in the Captain Cook Hotel. Oh, wow. And, um, and but pretty soon that got kind of boring, I think, because I'm thinking I want to hike. I don't want to go up and down the uh, fire escape at the at the Captain Cook. So uh, so I uh, changed training for the second year, and my time got considerably better. So you could see that you've got to train. This is not running training. You're climbing training. You don't mm -hmm. you don't run up this thing. You're going to pick a big step up. Um, if you want to get any kind of reasonable time. So anyway, a good friend of ours, uh, Tim Middleton, you mm -hmm. know him, and he specializes, or he got tired of running too, but he started doing 50 miles or 100 mile type races. So this is maybe the third or the fourth year and I'm, I've done a lot of training and my time's getting better. I'm getting down close to an hour. The whole idea was that you can break an hour. That was the way the bar room thing was done right so i'm uh the first first half of it you're kind of in the brush and you're kind of nose to butt you just you because you're almost single file going up this thing and so i'm i'm uh, cl uh clipping off people as as you uh you can decide you can see the ones that trained and the ones yeah. that didn't train because i i'm passing more people than i'm getting past 
And so I'm sailing up there and I go past this guy. It looked like I recognized my term is Tim Middleton. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I said, I said, God, this, this race was just worth it to say, I passed Tim Middleton. <laughs> and he, he turned to me and says, oh, you have to change your, tra your training for this thing, don't you? Because <laughs> he'd been doing the 50 milers. Yeah, everything. right. Yeah. yeah, you could do anything, you could do 50 miles. But... Right, right. <laughs> well, you, you did a couple marathons, though. So you did like Honolulu Marathon a couple years yeah. in a row. And so we did, and he... did it once, and we did the Anchorage one once. Yeah, you finished off oh, your... your... Your mother just done it. Uh, she's well let's see now she's done more than i have i know that. yeah she, so mom pat keller she actually did the first gold nugget which was back in 1984 i think and she also at that time in anchorage there was a women's only marathon one or two years it was very short right. and she did that marathon With the first running I remember that yeah oh for the gold nugget yeah yeah. Um, and then your last marathon was in 2004. So you were in your sixties and you came here and did Mount did mayor's marathon. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you were, you were one of the founders of Commonwealth North. Is that right, dad? Right. Right. And, and what is Commonwealth North? Well, it's a, a kind of a civic, uh, not really a think tank, but it's, it's, based on, on uh, people uh, assessing needs in the community and, and working with, with uh, businesses to, to uh, promote uh, just, just growth, growth and, and also kind of some intellectual content too that will have, um, you know, center, we centered it around a speakers forum and, um, we had a committee that would go out and and they they'd uh, wrangle in a lot of people. It really surprised me. A lot of people, a couple of Nobel Prize winners, um, uh, an economist, a lot of expertise kind of. And I couldn't I couldn't figure figure out uh, how we were able to get this. And it turned out that they had worked out this commit the committee had worked out a deal with. Um, Atlantic Richfield. Anyway, what happened is they they, they have a, a, a jet flight every morning at eight o'clock from Anchorage Airport up to Bruto Bay, and um, they gave us two or three seats if uh, we could we could order if the plane was not, not empty. Of um, we could offer people if they would come up and make a speech because we didn't want to pay people. We wanted people to, to give themselves. And what we did in return is we gave them a tour of Prudhoe Bay. And um, which was a tremendous incentive for most people who, who would want to get a chance to fly up there. We were all opposed to Jay Hammond. <laughs> That's how you all bonded. Democrats, Democrats and Republicans. And Bill Egan was still involved with with this, we used to have a during a, uh, have a meeting. I think it was every I don't know it was every Monday or every Tuesday, something like that, at seven a.m. Just a kind of a coffee get together thing. Except we use we got the use of the back room at the at one at one of the hotels or motels. And um, 
somebody says, you know, we're we're all sitting here and we all, all of us, both of us, the Democrats Republicans, lost the election. You know, Hammond got elected and neither one of us, we were kind of opposed to him because he was opposed to developing the state and that sort of thing. And that was the beginning. And there's a, uh, we traveled down to uh, San Francisco where the Commonwealth Club of California is a really well-known, well-respected. And I, we met with them about to make sure that there would, we, we wanted to name ours Commonwealth North but we're actually taking the name Commonwealth from you. And they said, they don't have any problem doing that. You know, just wanted to make sure who was, whether they were talking to people that could make the decisions and so forth. And when you got two ex-governors that are backing you up on what we want to do. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's how Commonwealth North started. There are about 15 of us that were originally in this Tuesday morning meeting we had and it's still going on now yeah yeah so you uh worked on wally hickles both of his uh gubernatorial not did, was it the fir first one or it was his uh, second when he ran in the 80s yeah. right or we, late 70s we did some work it would have been uh might have been poll watching or something like that your mother did it as well okay and and then first election is in the second election was um, a lot more recent, I and mean, that skips way up up to um, to nineteen nineteen ninety. Uh, nineteen ninety. Uh, let me think for a second. Yeah. So that you were also um, that that was kind of controversial. What happened there, right? Because Arliss. Oh yeah, that. It, it was. <laughs> You not want to talk about that? <laughs> oh, it's um, she's she was a dedicated Jay Hammond person, and and we all respect that. She's always had kind of reputation as a as a kind of left leaning Republican. Um, nowadays, she wouldn't have a chance. Uh, they would primary her in a flash, you know, with. Could I, I don't know. Maybe she's a little bit like Lisa Murkowski or Lisa Murkowski is yeah. a little bit like her. An independent. And that's, yeah. Yep. That's, and so what happened is the, the, there were some limitations. If you didn't qualify in a primary, whether you could be on a general ballot and Wally wasn't on the primary ballot. Uh, but, uh, and I, I wish it, I could recall his name, but he's a real colorful guy from Fairbanks. Uh, he runs on the Alaska um, party or the Alaska something or other. Right. So we met with him and said, um, we can't get on the ballot because we, di we didn't win in the primary. But you're going to be on the ballot and you didn't have to go through a primary. You just had because nobody was opposed to you. So in the essentially in the primary, you won a shot at the. And we found out that if, if you re resign and give your seat to Wally, that we could actually have Wally on the general election ballot. So um, he went along with us. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And Wally was elected governor. Wally was elected, yeah. And he run, uh, running on the Alaska independence, it had absolutely nothing, no party structure, just his name um, and, his, and his party, which and you can have any name for your party. Alaskan politics are always exciting, yeah. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so then you became the commissioner of administration in the Hickel administration, right? Right. And, and uh, the big thing I want you to explain to everybody is your nickname, Millet Scissorhands. Yeah. Well, a big, a real popular movie out at that time called Edward's Scissorhands. Mm -hmm. And my job is uh, when I, when I really originally talked to Wally about, about uh, coming on as commissioner of administration. Uh, so he said, that's fine. He said, are, are you strong enough to do the kind of cl uh, cleaning house that we're going to, it's going to have to be done. We've got a, we've had two or three successive Democrat governors and we're, we're spending at a rate of spending, we're way over what we can sustain. And that was going to be our kind of our, our founding, our founding principle was that whatever level of government we have, has to be able to be sustained because we can do it right now. We're getting getting more money. This was in 1988. Um, we're getting way more money than we need or can spend or whatever, you know, the most profligate nature there would be. And um, it's going to take somebody who's really tough. And so he's kind of, and I'm, you know, I'm nodding. He's on, we're on Commonwealth North. We've been talking about these things for three or four years by this time. So we, I'm blanking out. <laughs> so um, you start to make all of these cuts. Oh, yeah. That he's asking for. Yeah. <laughs> so I get this reputation as being this budget cutter or whatever. And um, this movie, Edward Scissorhands, was in a, was a popular movie at the time. And so some journalists, and so he's- It was the, it was the Fairbanks Daily News Miner, wasn't it, that wrote the article? And I'll have to go find it because I yeah. have it somewhere. Yeah, anyway, I was having interviewing uh, or talking to this reporter who would come in to, for a five or 10 minute briefing sort of thing. And I saw, I saw a pair of scissors sitting on the, uh, my desk. So I went over and I picked it up and this is for the reporter is gonna just to kind of toy, have some fun with him. Yeah, yeah. And um, and we were close friends. Mm -hmm. he, he listened and he uh, didn't, didn't do anything really nasty. So, uh, so I picked up the scissors and I crossed my arms like this and held the scissors in my hand and he had a photographer there and boom, you can hear that camera. <laughs> so, and then two, two days later, there's an article, so. And then that ended up not going over too well, eventually with the too, administration, but, right? You know, yeah, that was part of the problem is, uh, uh, it, you just, you're not giving you don't want to outshine your boss. I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of, the, not everybody's, Reagan wasn't that way. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not all politicians, but most 
of the of the ones who want the job and want to be reelected at the job. Um, don't want to get outshone by somebody who's under them. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of what I got. And the, it's the PR people said, boy, that was a stretch or you know, some kind of comment about that that was kind of just semi-neutral, but, but more. Um, but at this point, they were also like burning you in effigy in Juno, weren't they? <laughs> happened. In fact, I was coming, when it happened, I was coming back from the weekly Republican luncheon which was down at the hotel. And uh, there was a big ruckus of some kind up by the Capitol building. And so, and when I went in, somebody says to me, did you see what's going on out there? And I said, no. So they, they said, they're burning you in effigy and the governor just went out and had, had a word with the people. Wow. Sympathetic. To- yeah their cause and their yeah <laughs> the writing was on the wall <laughs> well dad uh thanks for taking all this time to chat with me mm. and we covered a lot of ground and um you're in seattle now living in seattle since um you were fired by wally hickel which many people see as a compliment <laughs> and you and mom left uh pretty much left from Juno and ended up in Portland and now Seattle for the last 30 years. Um, But your heart is in Alaska and um, uh, we know what we're doing with your ashes when that time comes that you will be returning to Alaska, to the soil of Alaska, right? Yep. Yep. So thanks so much for joining me today, dad. It's great to be with you, Lisa. That's it for today's show. Thanks to my guest, Millet Keller. You can find pictures and links on the Outdoor Explorer page on alaskapublic.org. The show is produced by Eric Bork. My name is Lisa Keller, and from all of our hosts here at Outdoor Explorer, thanks for listening, and we'll see you outside. Outdoor Explorer is a production of KSKA Public Radio in Anchorage, Alaska. Theme music is by Portugal, the man. Views expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect the station or its underwriters. You can find Outdoor Explorer on Facebook and in your favorite podcast app. To see what's coming up on Outdoor Explorer and add your voice to the conversation, go to our website at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.